Conversations with the greatest minds in Bitcoin. This is a Bitcoin Audible Chat. What is up, guys? I am Guy Swan. We are getting into an awesome conversation today. Uh, this is one I've actually been waiting to do for ages now uh, with Stefan Kinsella. He's an attorney and author, and uh, uh, he was actually really pivotal, pivotal in shaping a lot of my understanding of libertarian principles. Um, and I just recently read back through his book, Against Intellectual Property. And I highly, highly recommend it. It's available at Mises.org in PDF, ebook, and audiobook. I listened to it again. Uh, so I'll have the link in the show notes so you can check that out. You're probably going to want to dig into it if you haven't yet uh, after this discussion. Uh, no sponsor for today's show. Uh, so this chat will be free of any breaks. If you want to support the show, you can always become a patron at patreon.com slash the cryptoconomy. And of course, you get to hang out with all the ballers in the crew in our private telegram group um, for patrons. And of course, if you have an awesome project to promote or a service or a podcast in the Bitcoin space, whatever you think the audience might be interested in, hit me up at sponsor at thecryptoeconomy.com and we can chat about it. Uh, but for now, let's go ahead and get into today's excellent discussion with the one and only Stefan Kinsella. First off, just just kind of getting into it. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Um, I've been a big fan for for quite some time. You are one of the Austrians, one of the people in the Austrian libertarian community that I highly respect. I read, I don't know how long ago, um, that I got into against intellectual property for the first time. Right. Um, but it was a big deal for me, like at that point, because I was, I had always kind of like touched on the idea. And mm -hmm. I felt like there was something mm -hmm. intuitively wrong with it. Mm -hmm. But uh, but even a lot of libertarians and stuff, like like you even talk about in the thing, like Rand and mm -hmm. um, uh, Rothbard, don't really hit it the same way. So that was a big eye-opener for me. And I I love that book. And, and also that it's open. It's open source. Like anybody can just <laughs> have it. Obviously, there's no real intellectual property on it. Um, yeah. Uh, which I think is kind of ironically funny. Uh, but, uh, welcome to the show. Thank um, you. And, uh, and also a Bitcoiner too, right? I um, am. I actually spoke at the, uh, at that 2013 conference that Jeff Tucker had arranged in Atlanta called cryptocurrency conference. He never repeated it for some reason because it was pretty <laughs> successful. I didn't know a lot about it at the time. And I spoke on legal tender law and things that I know something about, but, um, I started getting more interested in at that conference. Yeah. In 2013. That's awesome. I had no idea it was that early back. Um, oh, yeah. But I think I, I remember one cool thing is that like a lot of the libertarians, a lot of the libertarian community, I feel like fell down the Bcash path. Yeah. Um, and that was something I always noticed in following you. You always and maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, but I had this impression that you kind of understood the nuances of the block size debate. And um, I, I mean, I, I don't I'm definitely not an expert. And I know that mm -hmm. people like you, uh, I, I, I tend to I like people who know their place, but I followed it and I <laughs> thought about it. And I, I think I'm an intelligent um, 
amateur on it. But um, yeah, I think I understood the, um, the nuances of the debate. And it's been interesting to see how it's played out in the last yeah. several years and, and how in the last 10 years, right, since crypto has been around, we've learned a lot about how this really fits into an economy and what its role could be and what makes sense and what doesn't. And I, I don't blame some Bitcoin people for, I won't say changing their narrative, but getting a different understanding of it over time as we see how this could possibly work in the real world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of like a situation where when you see this technology beat up against reality, like it, it teaches you and, and you realize where maybe your impression of it or your imagining of this utopia is wrong and where the trade-offs need to be made to actually get to the closest version of that that we can. Um, well, in a way, it's a little bit like intellectual property for me because once you unlock and start understanding intellectual property, it opens um, – it, it helps to unlock some other puzzles that have been sort of blocked, right? It, it frees you to have a better understanding of other aspects of economics and, and libertarian theory, and I think Bitcoin also um, has broadened our understanding of how money works. Like even in the Austrian sense, you know, the original yeah. stuff by yeah. Mises and all these guys was great, but they never contemplated something like this. So of course, their theories were talking about physical commodities and all these things, and so. Now it's helped expand our understanding of how money works and what the function of money is, I think. No, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and one of the interesting things about it is that like you actually see it, it, it's funny because like one of the one of the uh, analogies like early on that really had me like grasp why Bitcoin works the way it does is that fiat money actually worked for a really long time because it was connected to the scarcity properties of gold. But if the gold was never actually in the vaults, like if it was all empty, but the, but the money itself, the points that we were using to account and allocate all the resources remained with those scarce properties of gold, it still would have worked. It could have literally worked indefinitely. Right. It's, it was, and, it, and, it, and it really narrows down like what were the important properties. Um, well, what, what's interesting to me is uh, all these skeptics and critics of cryptocurrency because you know they're stuck in a physical world, and they say mm -hmm. it's impossible. It violates regression theorem, or or it doesn't have an intrinsic value. You know all these kind of bizarre arguments. Yet fiat money, fiat money is a lot like crypto, except it's worse. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's also not a real thing, right? I mean, it's not, not mm -hmm. a physical, tangible thing. And yet it is money now, and you can't deny that fiat currency is money. It's just a bad money because it's centralized and it has inflation. And, and, you know, and, and um, But it's obviously possible. It's almost like this anarchist argument with uh, – you probably you – know, I don't know if you know about this. There's a famous paper in the early jail, Journal of Libertarian Studies by Albert Kuzan called Do We Ever Get Out of Anarchy? He's not exactly a libertarian, but he has this interesting theory that you always have anarchy. Like even when you have states, there's anarchy yeah. within the states because no one makes the generals obey the president. He's not pointing a gun at their heads. So there's yeah. like an internal order inside the state, and there's also order between states in the world. Like there's no world government. So there's always anarchy, and anarchy is possible. The only question is what kind of anarchy do you want? So likewise, you know, 
money based upon a non-physical commodity is obviously possible because we have it now. How do we get here? And but it's just well, what kind do you want? And obviously, yeah. crypto is far better in almost every way. In yeah. every way, and, I would say. And it also seems like it, it, it intuitively seems like like as we move into a digital world where we have we have even digital digital products um, and uh, like digital spaces to hang out and we converse digitally, like increasingly everything is more and more digital. Yes. Like how is it that supposedly the only way we can actually exchange inform like exchange value, it remains stuck to the, to the physical right. world. Like, like what huge dichotomy, like, like, uh, like the trade-off there, like the loss of the ability to do that. Like it, it would completely limit our ability to actually have any degree of freedom or autonomy in the digital space if we're locked to something that one person has to have physical physical control over. Well, hmm. I always, I mean, for, for I think, I mean, uh, I, for decades, I've always thought in the back of my head, you know, we're moving in this direction. Like, we, if you imagine a future a future modern world a hundred years from now, you know, we're going to have digital film, which we have digital. Mm -hmm audio, uh, uh, digital email instead of letters being sent in the post office mail. Everything is going connected and networked and encrypted and digitized and all this kind of stuff, right, and computerized. Mm -hmm. So to my mind, like there was no doubt that eventually that would happen with money. I mean I was a gold bug in the sense of it's so much better than the fiat systems, but mm -hmm. still there's, there's disadvantages of gold. I mean someone can make, make gold. Or find a load of it, and you have to mint gold. You have to go mine it, and you know, and it has other uses, which you're diverting the gold from being used for that, and it has to be stored, and you have to, and then you have banks, and so there's lots of disadvantages with yeah. with gold, but it was better than everything else, basically. Mm -hmm. So I always thought there has to be some digital version. But I always thought, well, it's impossible because it doesn't have natural scarcity, and then you can just copy it, et cetera, you know, which was the problem with e-gold in the earlier. And exactly. There's the and problem. Then, <laughs> and then Bitcoin Satoshi figured it out, uh, I think. Um, and I also am an Austrian, like a Rothbardian Misesian, and so I never I, – I don't think money is wealth. Money is just a, a means of, of, of trade. Right and overcoming the double coincidence of wants problem, mm -hmm. and it's a means of uh, enabling economic calculation. That is just coming up yeah. with a common denominator that lets you have rational uh, planning of future projects. That's the only function of money, I believe. I don't believe yeah. in this smart contract stuff. To be honest, I'm a skeptic of all that stuff. I'm a skeptic of this. Now, I don't quite understand Ethereum and these other things. I'll confess, but I also think there's no reason for like. Oh, we could have a, a money, a crypto. You could have a thousand cryptocurrencies, one for this purpose, one for this, and all these people that say, "Oh, Bank of America might adopt the blockchain or Facebook." That's like that is. <laughs> I always think like, no, you only need one money in the world. It's ideally one, and probably it would be Bitcoin, um, mm -hmm. and that's it. It would just be money, yeah. and um, or or maybe the backbone money. I don't know, like gold, a gold type function, digital gold. Mm -hmm. So I was just amazed when when Bitcoin emerged, and I'm like, oh, I think someone kind of finally cracked this and figured it out. It's ingenious, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that you uh, kind of snagged on it so early. Um, and uh, uh, 
I've been, you know, I went down that rabbit hole pretty quick. And what's funny is like you bring up like Mazzesi and like the uh, the regression theorem or whatever. There was actually mm-hmm. a really great piece um, by, uh, you know, a, a Saliagorist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I read one of his pieces cause he's a, he's a big B cash guy. Um, and I kind of like going back and forth with him on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, because he, he has that deep Austrian base for why mm-hmm. he, why he thinks mm-hmm. it's the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, he has a great piece called, uh, the flawed economics of Bitcoin maximalism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I read it and he leans a lot on the, uh, the regression theorem. And what's funny is that if you think that the, like when, when you go back to the good having had some other use case that it's got, uh, uh, you know, value for some intrinsic reason, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of mm-hmm. silly on its, on mm-hmm. its face, mm-hmm. but for some other reason, mm-hmm. well, you realize that all it means is that the thing had to obtain a price before yeah. you could then use it to move value, before, before you could then transport it. But even if, but most of the uh, previous monies were actually collectibles. Like when you mm-hmm. look at something like uh, the Island of Yap and the stone mm-hmm. money um, mm-hmm. or the shells and uh, uh, the, um, uh, what were the, what were the seashells when I'm, I'm blanking right now? Was on it the conches or something like that? Or I don't yeah. Know. And there was like a wampum, wampum and oh, then yeah. the glass yeah. beads in like uh, uh, West Africa and all of mm-hmm. these things. Like these were specifically really difficult to make collectibles. Um, and uh, uh, that as soon as they obtained some value, the intrinsic quote unquote use, that previous use for them was irrelevant. Right. That, origina- that original part of it was to obtain a value and then to have a liquid market so that you could actually exchange it and solve the double coincidence of wants problem. Then that service of money, that uh, the ability to solve that problem, orders of magnitude, uh, sustained a greater value for well, that, the good. That's what, yeah, that's why when I hear gold bugs, and again, look, I'm, I was, I still am pro gold, and I, I was pro gold compared to everything else until sure, me the too, modern yeah. era. But when they say things like, well, like Peter Schiff or these kind of guys, gold at least has a, a, some kind of a, a backed up value or something like that. It's like, yeah, but it doesn't because it's only worth like the 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 use value or whatever you want to call it of gold is only say 1% or 10% of its yeah. value when it becomes money because it gets more, it gets more valuable because now it's money. So it's not backed up by any, nothing's, no money's backed up by anything or ever could be backed up by anything except fiat currency, which is backed up by the power of the fed to, to guarantee your deposits and that just means to print more money, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the value you, that's well, backed up, one, it's the nominal amount of it that is. <laughs> I'll tell you when when Bitcoin came out in you know 2009, 2010, 2011 when I started hearing about it debating with my friends, I never ever was skeptical about it from this Austrian thing, oh, it's not a commodity and it's not a a physical commodity and it's not uh and there's a regression theorem. Pro- my only skepticism was that I figured if it works then the government will shut it down. Yeah. So I made a bet with my friend. I don't know if you know VJ Boyapati, a good buddy of mine. Oh yeah, yeah. I read his uh, work yeah. really early on, the bullish case for Bitcoin. I have yeah, audio. He's got that. a lot of good stuff on it. And so VJ and I were debating. I think it was 2012, right before this conference I spoke at, and I made a bet with VJ that Bitcoin would be at some low price by the end of 2012. I think it was. 
Um, <laughs> now, my and my reason was I wasn't skeptical of Bitcoin. I just thought the government would shut it down, which yeah. they kind yeah. of are suppressing it. I think with their tax laws and their regulations. Um, but so I do think it's it's actually being held back right now, and I still am not sure if the government will kill it, but maybe it's too late to kill it. But I thought they would. I just, but so the government, I just had overconfidence in the government's evil, right? Mm -hmm. So I lost the bet, and we had bet a hundred dollars, and so uh, and I think Bitcoin was thirty dollars a Bitcoin at the end of 2012, if I'm remembering the dates right. And VJ said, well, he says. Uh, I'll tell you what, instead of paying me $100, I'll let you pay me in three Bitcoins, which is only $90. So you'll get a deal. And I think he was trying to encourage me to figure out how to buy Bitcoins. You know, he was trying to <laughs> do this activism yeah. thing. So I said, ah, screw it. I'll do it. So I, I bought like five Bitcoins and I gave him three. Hell uh, yeah. <laughs> he still teases me to this day. Hey, you, you, you gave me $30,000, you know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but so that my only skepticism was I just thought the government was going to shut it down. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, then after that, I said, screw it. It's apparently it's, it, the government's too slow and stupid to realize what a threat it's facing. So yeah. maybe they won't be able to shut it down. So, yeah, And I think we're genuinely, I think we're kind of past the point of the government actually being able to shut it down. Or even um, if one government shuts it down, there's two. I mean, it can it it can still survive in other jurisdictions, right? Yes, yes. Even even if they outright ban it, one is that the the greatest incentive for Bitcoin to understand the value case of Bitcoin is runaway inflation and capital controls or capital right. flight from a country. Yeah. Um, and those are also the conditions in which a government would feel deeply needed to ban Bitcoin as quickly as possible. So it's very likely that the very reason that a government would make an outright ban of it is also the same reason why it would be highly, highly valuable to the people in that jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, and they would pay very, very close attention to it. But the network itself, like even, like now we have actually 25% of the nodes run over the Tor network. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and then you've got like the Blockstream satellite network that is, I think it's like 80% or 90% of the world. You could just point a dish into the sky absent of right. the internet and you can sync um, and stay connected to the network. Uh, basically, there's no firewall. Like the great firewall of China, Bitcoin can squeeze through. Um, and yeah. uh, so there's no really stopping people from using it. And of I course, you if could, you can walk you could... across the border. You could still imagine, though, some weird scenario where, you know, the U.S., the United States government shuts down the whole Internet or something, or China starts blowing up our satellites in space and, you know, and the whole Internet goes down. And that that could deal a blow to it, I would think. But yeah, yeah. Then we're in that, would be, world. that would definitely be a huge blow. But I think we'd actually recover um, because as soon as first, everybody would be fighting desperately. I mean, like. Yeah. The bulk of the economy runs over the internet right, right now. Um, yeah. So uh, that would literally be the nuclear bomb dropped on planet Earth sort of yeah. scenario. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as soon as everything was back up, as soon as we had the connection, Bitcoin would be live again. Bitcoin would be running. Um, and everybody would be desperate to continue mining yeah. because now they've lost, you know, an, a day's worth of revenue or whatever it is. Um, so I think it would just be, you know, just like we've had in the past during some kind of scares and some major stressors on the network 
you have slow blocks. You know, but like I've, things I mean, are just really I, sluggish for a while. I've always wondered. I, I don't know the technical details of how the Bitcoin uh, protocol works, but my understanding is, in the in the ten or, or plus eleven years since it's, since it's been around, it's every ten minutes it's been updated. The blockchain's been updated. And it's never missed at all, right? Uh, yeah, no, it's never. Like there have been periods <laughs> where there was like huge delays between blocks. Mm -hmm. Um. But uh, over the entire thing, like uh, even even during a couple of uh, like there were bugs like really, really early on, like there was an inflation bug in 2010 uh, that forced what was referred to as a rollback where mm -hmm. nodes uh, oh, uh, right. didn't accept that this transaction was correct because it created like 18 billion Bitcoin in one transaction or something crazy like that. Um, and uh, so they had to, quote unquote, roll back like. 12 blocks or something like that they had basically had a huge a giant orphan on the network where these 12 blocks just got deleted um and redone you know like they had to remine them like uh and uh and then there was another minor version of that that happened in late 2013 mm -hmm. uh, but outside of that but those aren't hard forks like right. those are right those are deletion. Those are the orphaning of blocks to prevent a hard fork and to and prevent everyone, a everyone break in the rules. There's a consensus, so everyone agrees, and it, it gets straight again. Exactly. Exactly. They were they were hiccups that got worked back out. You know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's basically that's basically it. Um, and since then, it's been running pretty damn strong, and it's, in my opinion, like from a very thorough reading and exploration of it it appears to be the most resilient network in the world certainly the most resilient financial network um as right. far as like can survive literally a nuclear bomb could drop on china and bitcoin would keep working um i don't know how many banks and payment networks would go down <laughs> but bitcoin wouldn't so um yeah i would, went a little bit down the bitcoin rabbit hole there too early but I wanted to, for anybody who hasn't, who listens to the show, I haven't really dug into the intellectual property stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I know I've mentioned it a couple of times and probably plenty of people know that I'm against intellectual property, mm -hmm. but can you give like a kind of in a nutshell version of the basic argument for the book? I think so. Um, and, and by the way, I, you know, I wrote that in 98 or 2000 or something and um, I stand wow, by is it that old now. Yeah, and I stand by everything oh, wow. in it. Uh, but uh, I've 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 argued many things in the meantime and come up with diff uh, come across different counter arguments. So I keep developing new versions and new. So I, I plan mm -hmm. to I do plan to write a new book on this maybe in a year of and I'm going to call it copy this book and it's going to be like <laughs> the whole argument from scratch with all the new arguments I've learned in the meantime. But I think the basic argument is this. Um, Let's just take kind of take for granted that the listener uh, appreciates, if not agrees, with some basic ideas like the basic idea of property rights and individual freedom and free markets, that kind of thing, right? Like we're all in favor mm -hmm. of human prosperity. We we're all in favor of uh, people getting along, society prospering, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And if they don't, I don't know why they're listening to my show. So. Exactly. So I, I think I can take. I mean, I don't need to. I, 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 there's arguments for that stuff too, but you can only argue so far down before. If you're talking to a psychopath, then <laughs> you, you, you want to get your gun out instead of yeah. your arguments. Um, 
But um, so pr the whole purpose of law and property rights is a response to the fact that we live in a world of scarce resources. Now, the word scarcity, you have to be careful with this. Um, it, it has different senses. Like sometimes it means lack of abundance, like I only have so many bananas. And yeah. sometimes it's used in the economic sense to mean what, what the economists would say rivalrousness or rivalrous. So like okay. a given banana is rivalrous because it's a physical object that only I can eat or consume or use or possess at a time. And if you take it from me, I don't have it anymore. Yeah. Now, if we live on a planet of a billion zillion bananas and there's banana trees everywhere, then they would be – effectively not scarce in the plentifulness sense like there'd be bananas everywhere and from frankly, a point of I, practicality like everybody could have as many as they wanted well and then so you wouldn't care if someone stole your banana because you exactly. could just pick another one and then why would they steal it anyway if they can just pluck one so at a certain point these concepts dovetail into each other in the limit as you as we say like in math like in the limit but there's a distinction so the problem with using the word scarcity is that um, it, it lets the advocates of intellectual property equivocate, and they will they'll try to trap you and say something like, well, we need to protect ideas because I don't know about you, but I think good ideas are pretty scarce too. So now what they mean is they mean that <laughs> it's rare to have a good idea. Yeah, but, which is but not the that, same That means like we only have so many bananas in the world. But, or, or, but, but what scarcity means in the property sense is that we live in a world of conflict, like where it's a possibility of conflict. Which is why the word rivalry is used. People can be rivals over something. Only one can use this resource at a time. So mm -hmm. everyone needs to act in the world. That means we need to do things with our bodies and with land and with the resources we find to survive and to hopefully get rich and prosper by doing, you know, long run things like planting crops and having factories and having division of labor and trading with each other and living in peace and harmony. With each other and everyone gets better and better but we all have mm -hmm. to respect to do that you have to have a secure property right in these resources otherwise someone else could take it from you and you couldn't use it and then you're not going to invest your resources to develop it in the first place etc so this is mm -hmm. why property rights and laws arise the whole purpose of a law or a property right is a response to this fundamental fact of scarcity or you could say rivalrousness in the world um and then and then you have – well, see, this ties into the Bitcoin thing in a way because then you have people start trading and bartering with each other, and then you have the problem of double coincidence of wants and economic calculation problems, and therefore money emerges too. So that's mm -hmm. why money emerges. So it's all related together. But the point is that every law, every right, every human right, every property right, they're all property rights, and it always is a law or a rule in society that answers the question… When there's a dispute between two or more people over a given scarce resource, like a physical thing in the world, when there's a dispute, when they both claim it, they both want this thing, you know, this horse, this piece of land, this mm -hmm. piece of gold, the question is who is the owner? Okay, That's what law answers. That's what property rights are, are set out to define. Okay, So that's the basic background or framework for all this. Now… What has happened is we've had a, 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 the government has taken over lawmaking, sort of like they've taken over the roads and the education 
and printing press and all these kinds of things, right? And the banking yeah, yeah. system. Um, and they distort and they corrupt and they, they control it. Um, and in the government control of the law, they've slowly introduced adjustments to this sort of basic common law system. Like the common law was a, a set of rules that judges and courts came up with over the centuries to answer these disputes, like when people would have a dispute. Who gets mm -hmm. to own this cow? And the judge would look at it and say, well, who raised the cow? Who who owned the cow 10 days ago? Who bought the cow? You know, If some guy just stole it from me, then give it back to the own, original owner. So they used basic simple rules like who had the thing first, who transformed it, who found it in the wilderness, who bought it from a contract from a previous owner. You know, you ask these simple questions and you can answer the question after yeah. you get, get the facts. Um, so the government starts introducing, and this is just common law or natural law, uh, evolved law, you could call it. But then the government starts having things called parliaments, you know, or, or legislatures like our Congress, groups of, of committee, uh, groups of bureaucrats working for the government who can announce new rules and they can change the law. This is called legislation or statutes. So over time, governments of, of they, they modify the natural law, which is basically there to settle disputes among people and to come up with property rights. And they modify it with different exceptions, like, well, normally you own your land unless you didn't pay your taxes to the king, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah. or 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 you have to pay a certain amount of taxes every year, right? Or or if you if you sell a book with 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 an image of Muhammad on the cover, then you will be killed. So like they, you know, they, yeah. or the Christian version of that, you know, you, you can't yeah, yeah, yeah. commit apostasy or you can't you can't criticize the monarch or something. So like if you use your property in a certain way, then we're going to make an exception to the normal function of law, which is to settle yeah. dispute. And we're going to just announce a rule and we're going to, in effect, take your property from you. Because like, if, you, if, if you put someone in jail for not paying taxes or for or for selling drugs… Or if you send them off to war, you conscript their body. You're basically commandeering a resource that they own, like their body, mm -hmm. which the natural law, the common law would have said, no, you own your body. So <clears throat> legislation comes into the picture, and one of the things they do, in addition to all the vast sea of regulations that we have now, is intellectual property law, which originally was never called property. It was called you know, patent and copyright and things like that. Mm -hmm. So… Copyright and patent – copyright, the, the function of that is to basically give someone the ability to stop someone else from publishing a book, basically. Yeah. Basically from making a copy of something. Now, the purpose of that was thought control and censorship and state control of official speech and all that originally, and it morphed into the system we have now. And then patents, the purpose of that was to – was protectionism. It was to – it was to give someone a monopoly over some field of activity in a region, um, usually to for king favorites. Like, if you will help collect my taxes, I'll I'll give you a monopoly on selling sheepskins. Okay, and so then the, the king's guards will, you know. So then you can of course sell sheepskins for a monopoly price because you don't have any competitors, so yeah. it's anti-competitive. So you pick the price. Exactly, it's, and so. <laughs> Over time, these morphed into our modern copyright and patent laws, and when they came under attack in the 1800s, when the free market started getting under – the free market economists started emerging, 
the Industrial Revolution was underway. The U.S. was starting to grow. Britain was growing. Um, all these free market economists started saying, why the hell do we have the government granting monopoly grants of privilege protecting people with patents, for example? Okay, so people started questioning this, and some countries started abolishing these things. They said, yeah, this is totally incompatible with the free market because it is. Yeah. Um, and so in response, the people that were dependent by now on these on these patent systems, you know, tech, like uh, the Wright brothers for the airplane and you know Edison yeah. for his light bulb and all these kinds of things, you know. They started saying, "Well, it's not a monopoly privilege grant. It's it's a property right." And then the response was, "Well, what do you mean? Why does it expire after 17 years then? Because that's not a property right." <laughs> and they said, yeah. "Well, it's a, it's an it's a it's an intellectual property right. So they they put a modifier on there. It's, it's just a special type of property. It's the result of the creation of your mind's efforts and everything. So that's kind of the background of way I've come to look at it and understand it. Um, the problem with this is that it basically is an erosion of. Look, let me give an analogy. If you have a, a if you have a a, a, a a sound money system, let's say we had a gold standard. Okay, there's going to be almost no inflation because gold is hard to find. That's why it became money in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. um, there might be a little inflation, but it's all private and it's gradual and et cetera. So prices are stable. Everyone's purchasing power of their money that that they hold in gold is pretty stable, and there's no business cycles, et cetera. Well, <clears throat> if the government replaces that with fiat money and then they can just print more money, then they don't create wealth when they print more money. All they do is they cause price inflation, right? So everyone, mm -hmm. if you're holding $100,000, the purchasing power of that goes down over time. So it's a way of taking – you know, it's sort of like positive rights and negative rights in libertarianism. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. The reason we believe in negative rights is all – all we all all we're telling you is what you can't do. You can't come into my house without my permission. You can't hurt my body without my permission. You can't take my stuff without my permission. You need my permission. But otherwise, if you mind your own business, we're all fine. But if once you start having positive rights, then like a right to education or welfare, that means other people have an obligation to give you something, to provide it yeah. to you. So yeah. the point is life is scarce and nothing is for free. If you print more money, You've got to take value from other people. You've got to erode their value. Whoever you're helping, that's fine, but you're you're helping them at the expense of other people. Nothing is for free. And if you grant positive rights to people, it has to come at the expense of people's negative rights, um, their their natural rights, their property rights. And mm -hmm. by the same token, if you if you create intellectual property rights, because they're always actually in phys in reality forced enforced by state courts using state physical force against people's physical property, then it's always a way of taking people's property. That's the yeah. basic problem with intellectual property is it's a way of taking other people's property. So for example, if Apple gets a patent on a round a rounded corner smartphone with a touchscreen, <laughs> Then, which, which is they, damn near what they got. <laughs> it, it is exactly what they got, and that was just a design patent. Okay. And and it's, it's, that means that they can prevent Samsung or someone else from from setting up a competing factory and making a, a phone 
that has a touch screen with rounded corners, uh, which means that in effect, Apple has partial ownership of the factories of Samsung because they can tell they can tell Samsung you can't do this with your property. So yeah. they're like a partial owner of that. So it's a way of transferring property rights, and it's a way of protect. Of course, it, it gives rise to protectionism and it reduces innovation because now Apple can rest on their laurels and they can charge monopoly prices, and then they can sue Samsung and, and pay lawyers like me millions of dollars <laughs> to win, and then they can pass that cost down on to the consumer who's now a trapped consumer because they can't go to a competitor because there's no competitors. So the whole system is completely and 100% anti-free market, anti-property rights, anti-capitalism. Um, it only reduces innovation. It suppresses it. So you hear all these stories like, oh, patent system is to help the little inventor guy stand up against the big guy. Just stupid, hokey, complete propaganda bullshit. Crap. It's total nonsense. And then the copyright system, there's other problems with that one too. So um, that's kind of a nutshell version. That's a little bit advanced, but mm -hmm. that is a concise, true picture of it. Um, yeah, I just listened to it again coming back from Bitlock Boom, and mm -hmm. uh, you hit on the two things that stood out to me uh, the most in going back through it. Um, that one was that the the point of property rights, the reason it's important to have them is a way to avoid conflict as a species in the most objective, most fair way yeah. uh, with, with resources that are scarce and scarce. And I like that you point out this like, Oh, well, you know, good ideas are scarce. It's like, no, it's not about, it's not about being rare. It's about scarcity in uh, exclusivity that you and I can't wear the same shoe at the same time. Either you are wearing it or I am wearing it. And one of right. us has to have exclusive control over it but both of us can think the same idea both yeah. both of us can build the same wheelbarrow um with our own individual resources but we can't use the exact same wood for both yeah. wheelbarrows um and uh, so that was that was like a really great mental framing but then the other one was uh uh oh man you were just oh, oh positive positivism is that the you mean positive right positive and negative rights yes yes that to enforce patent law to enforce an intellectual property is can only be done at the uh at the trade-off or at the loss of a person's negative rights of a person's actual property rights so yeah and, like, and that's bec that's because think about the word enforce i mean the word force yeah. is part of that word enforce the government can only use physical force against the bodies or the property the physical resources that can be affected by force, right? The real thing, tangible things in the world. That's the only. That's what laws are. It's, yeah. Listen, if 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 you got a judgment against me for patent infringement, and the award was that you can copy my ideas back, it's like okay, <laughs> but that's never <laughs> what the award is. It's always like you have to give me some of the money in your bank account. You know, you have <laughs> to pay me damages. Um, yeah. You have to stop using your factory in this way. Otherwise, you will go to jail. Yeah, you have to turn over this part of your future or your past or your present over to me because you have used the same idea that I had. Um, now, I'll tell you one interesting – so here's another interesting – mm -hmm. so all these things I've coming up with in the last 15 years in debating people, but 
Another interesting thing is you'll see a lot of these pro-IP libertarian types like, say, Richard Epstein and Adam Mossoff, who's an objectivist. They'll make these arguments that like they'll say, well, all these attacks on IP because there's a growing amount of attacks on IP by me and other libertarians in the last 20 years. Ever since the Internet, we've all gotten alarmed at what IP might do to the Internet right? because the Internet is mm -hmm. information being shared. That's why copyright yeah. is such a big threat to Internet freedom, right? Anyway, um, so they'll say things like, well, it's really very analogous or similar to physical property because they'll say things like you can have contracts about it, you can trade it, you can sell it. And I'm like, well, first of all, that was true of slavery. You could own a human <laughs> being and you could, you, could, you could mortgage him. You could take a loan out. That's why Jefferson couldn't free his slaves because there was a mortgage that's on you – know, he had debts, and I mean… Just because the law can treat people like property, in fact, that's what that's what the prison system does, right? That's what China does when they put when you put someone in prison, you're treating them like your property, like their cattle. Yeah. yeah, you can treat people like property, but the question is, is it just? Right. So, <laughs> so the question again is, who owns it? Who owns this resource? So I think that the mistake. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to sell people this idea that well. It's just another part of capitalism, which is the argument they made all these years ago when they started calling it intellectual property. Um, the proper legal analysis, to get a little bit legal for a second, and I've thought about this for a long time, and because I'm from Louisiana – by the way, I noticed, an accent, I noticed a southern accent on you. Do you. Are you from Mississippi or the south or something? Uh, I am from the – I'm not from Mississippi, but good old North Carolina. <laughs> North Carolina. Okay, all right. I was kind of close. Okay. Um, <laughs> But in Louisiana, where I went to law school, there's a, there's a civil law system. It's, the, it's more the European system, and we yeah. talk about things like uh, servitudes instead of easements. And in any case, I've come to the conclusion that the best way legally to characterize intellectual property rights is not – it's just another type of property like Epstein and Mossoff say. It What it is is it's a type of negative servitude. Now. Everyone's familiar with negative servitudes or negative easements, but they don't call them that uh, among common speak, but they, it's restrictive covenants. So like if you live in a neighborhood, for example, yeah, with yeah, yeah, 100 yeah. other people, and you agree to come into this neighborhood, and you own your house mostly because you own it except for the fact that you're prohibited from doing some things by agreement among the neighbors, right? Like building a fence too high or exactly, leaving, that kind of thing. letting your grass so, get too tall. <laughs> so you could say that I own my house 99% and my neighbors own it 1%, but they don't have the right to use it, but they have the right to stop me from doing something. Mm -hmm. Now, there's nothing wrong with those arrangements as long as they're voluntary. Like, so for example, there's nothing wrong with you and I sharing a house together if we co-own it. If, by mm -hmm. agreement, we can live. We can live in a house together. That's what husband and wife do, basically, right? Yeah. But if the government just gave your neighbor the right to live in your house with you, like they did in 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 the Soviet Union, right? Like in East Germany and these kinds of things, and like another family just moves in with you, that's effectively a taking of your property rights. And by the same token, if if a patent holder can prevent me from using my factory the way I want to use it, that's that is a negative servitude or a negative easement. The, the the problem is I didn't grant it to him. Like there's no contract, so the government just decreed this. So if you understand how con how property rights work in legal systems, whether the common law or the civil law, um, 
there's nothing wrong with contractual arrangements that result in negative restrictions, restrictive covenants, negative servitudes, negative easements. These things are all fine as long as they're voluntary. It's just like two people can share an apartment together if it's voluntary. Yeah. But if the government, and particularly in the age of in the age of like networks and platforms, is that you could actually come up with almost some pseudo version of copyright that worked within a certain closed market. Um, but yeah. people would voluntarily join and accept those accept and they those might. rules. Although and they I might, think yeah. that, I think I think that's far, I think that's unlikely. But hey, whatever I people kind of want agree, to do. But yeah. Yeah. But the the thing is that would never satisfy the copyright advocates because they want this to be universal because they understand. See, is this is the other dishonest thing. It's either stupidity or ignorance or dishonesty among the advocates of IP because they will try to act like they're just defending contract and mm-hmm. and they're just in favor of, of opposing. They're, they're opposed to fraud. So so for example, they'll say, well, if I sell a book, I'm selling it on the condition that it not be copied. So. They're trying to act like if someone copies the book later, it's a, it's a contract breach, and we're all in favor of contract law, so it's not really a problem. So obviously, one must enforce this. Well, but the problem is they enforce it against people who didn't sign any contract, right? Yeah. So that's the problem. So if what you're talking about is some kind of a, some kind of a cartel, which, by the way, would probably be outlawed by the government under monopoly law. So I mean. Antitrust law should be abolished too, and then people should be able to have whatever cartel-like arrangements they think they can get away with. Fine. If the publishers want to go to Amazon and say, Amazon, you can only sell books to people that agree to sign on this agreement that they will pay me a million dollars if they ever learn from or copy or imitate this book at all or sell it to another person. Yeah. Okay. Theoretically, that's fine. I don't think that business model would have a a, a chance in hell of ever working. Which customer would buy a seven dollar book and be on the on the hook for a million dollars of liability, right? And this if you're all like if, so, then if, if it's only ten dollars of liability, then someone's going to just say, "Fine, I'll pay the fine and I'll copy it," and then then the, then it's out the bag. And, and then the game's there. over. Yeah, it's it's already out. Yeah. Now. Uh, the funny thing about Bitcoin is that do you think this changes the nuance of this at all? Like, or like, because obviously Bitcoin is scarce as a, as the points themselves, but in the end, it is a quote unquote intellectual property. You have a secret, um, that should, or in any normal sense belongs to you. How do you think? this applies like what's your what is a bitcoin key in this so so yeah so here here's here's the right way i think to look at the bitcoin thing and i've thought about it um um first of all businessmen and practical people sort of like the word scarcity like it has two meanings Mm -hmm. it can mean rivalrousness or it can mean um lack of abundance there's like not enough um Similarly, like the word ownership, for example, when we talk about I own these bitcoins, I mean the English language is only so precise. I mean I kind of wish there was another word we could use, but for practical purposes, what you're expressing when you say I own 10 bitcoins is that you have the ability to control them and use them, right? I have the exclusive ability to uh, change uh, the details of the contract that these bitcoin are in. 
Well, I don't think there's a contract actually, so that's another issue. So we can talk about okay. that. But I don't think there's a contract at all. I think there's rules of the game. There's rules of the network. I mean, Bitcoin you can you you can use it anonymously, right? Or you can use it without even you don't sign a contract to anyone. There's not even terms of service, as far as I understand. Well, technically, isn't isn't the because because the way Bitcoin works is it signs over and locks a Bitcoin behind someone else's public key. Like that's what I refer to as but a contract. It, is that the Bitcoin I, so network that's, that's, enforces? That's another example of say. So that, so that's another example. Okay. Of, so the word contract is used in a practical sense, but in the law, it's got to be used in another sense. So you have to distinguish. Okay. This is the problem with language. So yeah, my my nuance of the definition of that word is, is well in the in the old there. <laughs> in, in the pre-Bitcoin world or in the pre-internet world, everything was physical. Let's say just to simplify, and mm -hmm. so. If I needed to use a resource, it was a physical resource, but to be able to use it in confidence that it won't be taken from me, um, I need the protection of property rights in the law, and so we call that ownership. And so we start identifying ownership with this ability to use a resource that's useful to us, right? So mm -hmm. Bitcoin has done something analogous by using um, uh, uh, encryption and their systems. So. In a way, what Bitcoin has come up with is better. One second. No worries. My ringtone is it's Hoppa saying crush the anti-fascist mob. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that is the most Austrian economist ringtone I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, I got it from an alt-right guy's uh, podcast, but still, it's a good clip. <laughs> um. But uh, so here, here's the thing. Here, here's my top level understanding of Bitcoin. You correct me because I'm sure you know the details better. Bitcoin mm -hmm. is uh, basically uh, it's a distributed ledger, right? The, the blockchain. So it's it's a it's a ledger, and it's it's stored on different hard drives around the world, thousands of copies, right? It's distributed yeah. and decentralized. So it's just information, right? And then yeah. It's, yeah. it's designed as a system, a scheme, a game, which is why you have all these offshoots like Bitcoin God, Bitcoin Cash, and anyone can copy it and start their own little network, their yeah. own little game, their own Tweak scheme. Tweak the rules, whatever they want to do, yeah. Yeah, they could copy them or they could modify them or they could do a new one, whatever. So, it, But it's, it's like an internal network. It's like Facebook in a way. It's a network. It's a system. Mm -hmm. But it's basically – Bitcoin itself is an entry on this ledger. I think of it as an entry on the ledger, or mm -hmm. maybe the Satoshi is the entry on the ledger. Um, but um, – and those – and the rules of the system requires you to have access to a key and a private key to, to transfer it to someone else, right? Um, mm -hmm. So to say you own a Bitcoin is just a metaphorical way of explaining that the way the system is set up, you're confident that only you have the ability to change it's, this entry uh, in that big distributed ledger. Now, well, I lost you for like four seconds. You said to say you own a Bitcoin is to... It's just you're expressing the fact that you're confident in, in the way this system is set up, right? Mm -hmm. Given its history, given your experience with it, given your understanding of the rules. Mm -hmm. uh, you're confident that only you have the ability to transfer those entries to, to change that entry. 
basically. Yes. And then all the other people update the entry yeah, to and, a new key or whatever. And if you do it the right way with the right key, then every ten minutes the blockchain will update, and all these copies of this ledger around the world will be updated to reflect that. But mm -hmm. basically, this is a ledger stored on thousands of, of of nodes around the world. So it's just really the way that people's hard drives are arranged. So for you to like in in the libertarian or the legal sense, if you were to own the Bitcoin, it really means you own these other people's computers. Okay, but which is the same problem with intellectual property is that it gives you the right to own people's factories. But you don't mm -hmm. own their computers. Let me let me give you an an example. Craig Wright. Okay, so let me let me before, before we get into that, I want to like so uh, one of the interesting things is that the software will not talk to each other unless everyone is enforcing the same rules. So the reason I refer to it as a contract, but again, since it's not it's not a legal contract, so I might be kind of thinking. I think you mean, of the term I think you, mean a, you mean agreement, really? And I know agreement, those agreement. Yeah, I think um, they're used they're used synonymously, but you mean like people do happen to agree. It's a basically a recognition that everyone, all the other computers are that are running this exact same software yeah. are essentially making a promise that only the signature that fulfills these explicit conditions yeah. will allow you to update what's on my computer. Yeah. But it's first of all, it's not really it's not really a promise in the legal sense. And and even that is a problem because in Rothbard's view of contracts, contracts are not about promises at all. So okay. I'm, being, I'm, being, I'm, being, I'm being pedantic, but you, and you have to be at a certain point. But, but the, it's, it's like you can't have a chess tournament if everyone doesn't agree on what the rules of chess if, is. If they're not playing the same game, right? exactly. Right. So you can call that – you can metaphorically describe that as an agreement to abide by the rules and even promising and all that. But really, it's not a contract or a promise in the legal sense. Um, it's simply mm -hmm. what you have to do to participate in this network that someone set up that requires a certain amount of inputs. It's like APIs. I mean you have to have a certain amount of – you have to speak the right language to make the system work. You have to feed in a valid mm -hmm. private key for the, the network to accept your transfer of this, of this token from one to the other, and that's all fine yeah. and good. Yeah, it's actually uh, one of one of my favorite pieces uh, that I've read on the show um, that I just love, and it shows exactly what because it's something that you actually mentioned a little while ago about how the legal system is is strictly there, particularly in like the common law sense, to settle disputes against um, the ownership against who the rightful authority or who who has the exclusive control, uh, proper exclusive control over this good, is that. That is actually what Bitcoin is competing against. Um, uh, it's an article called Bitcoin and the Promise of Independent Property Rights. Mm -hmm. Is that it's a non-legal, it's a non-governmental system that enforces exclusivity over a set of rules that nobody actually, like, j just like in chess or whatever, it's just like everybody's agreeing to the same rules and therefore are playing on the same game in the same network. And because its value is its network, you don't own anything unless you're playing by the same rules. Like, like what you have is of no, no value to anyone else. Um, so it's attached the, the very nature of uh, what makes it scarce and what makes it a money to the very, uh, to, the, to the right, quote unquote, um, 
to exclusivity over it. Um, but it's more like a trade secret. You know, you have a key that's yeah. yours and you better keep that shit private or yeah. it's not yours. <laughs> yeah. And I just think that, and that's fine to use that kind of language because I don't know of a better language. I just think we have to be aware that there's a distinction between, you know, in the law, we distinguish between possession and ownership. Possession means the physical, okay, yeah. the actual physical control or ability to use a resource. And ownership is the legal right to it, and they're distinct. So, for example, you know, if I steal your car, I'm in possession of the car, but you have the ownership of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, now, in Bitcoin, there's only possession, but people use the word ownership because it's just as good as ownership in the legal sense. So, I think that's really what's going on here, and that's all fine. You know. Um, yeah. Uh, now, uh, here another way to look at it is. If you understand the purpose of property rights in the IP in the IP argument world, the purpose is to identify rivalrous or scarce resources that people can have a conflict over and to identify who the owner is, right? That's what property mm -hmm. rights say, who's the owner of this thing. Once you identify what the thing under dispute is and you identify a set of rules you can use to identify who the owner is, right? <clears throat> the guy who had it first, the guy who bought it from a previous owner or whatever. Um, then you can answer the question. But the question is always, what's the thing at issue and who owns it? Now, what you have to realize is that information can never be one of those things because information is always has to be stored on something else. Information is not some free-floating platonic object that floats around in the world and that you can own the information. Information mm -hmm. is always an impatterning of a substrate. Now, the substrate is of the physical thing. So gotcha. take a book. A book is pieces of paper with ink and arranged in a certain way. Right? Yeah. Um, the information or, is not really – the ink yeah. is not really the information. The page is not the information. Like it's, it's, the, it's the fact that there is a pattern that's recognized and yes. can be read and interpreted. Yeah. So what, but what that means is that information is always um, a feature of another thing. In other words, okay, it's yeah. always a characteristic of a resource. Yeah. So it's kind of like numbers in the same sense. Is like is like there, there is not a thing called a number, but you can have a number of a thing. Like two uh, apples isn't yeah. like does that does that not work? Uh, I think that's similar but different. Um, information, I think, is the parad paradigmatic. When we humans understand things in terms of information. The information mm -hmm. helps guide our actions and helps us understand things, mm -hmm. or it helps us understand why this object is rearranged in a certain way and works. Like, a, you know, you could have a bunch of iron metal and it doesn't do anything, but if you arrange it in a certain way, it's a car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so here's the point. When you own a yeah. resource, like let's say you own a red car. So the redness is the color of the car. It's a feature of the car. Okay, it has a it has other features. It has a size, it has an age, it has a weight, it has a it has a configuration. You don't own those features. You own the thing. You own mm -hmm. the thing having certain features. You can't own features of a thing because that would give you ownership of everyone else's thing in the world that has similar features. Like gotcha, if you yeah. own a red balloon. And that means you own not only the balloon itself, which is a scarce resource, but you own the red – or like I say, take a banana, a yellow banana. You, you, it has, it's yellow, but it doesn't mean you own yellow. 
if you owned yellow, then that means you yeah. can stop everyone from building a yellow car or having another banana because they're also yellow. So mm -hmm. uh, the point is you can never own the features of a thing. But because information is always the feature of a thing, it's always the impatterning of a substrate, an underlying thing, you can never own the thing. The reason the internet works, the reason that Bitcoin works is that there are property rights in these substrates. So the property rights system is sufficient to give people ownership of their computers, their hard drives, and the, and the backbone mm -hmm. network of the internet itself. Once they have that ownership, they can set up whatever schemes they want. You know, it's like if you own a building, you can set up a casino in there and have a casino or a nightclub or mm -hmm. whatever you want to do. You don't need to have the right to have a casino. You don't need to have the right to have a nightclub. You don't need to have the right to own poker to have poker tables in your building. <laughs> you only need the right to yeah. own the building, and then once you have that basic right in your physical goods, you can do whatever you want in the, within the free market within voluntary exchange and trade. So the mm -hmm. problem with IP and the problem with the idea of legally owning your Bitcoins is you're double counting. You're saying, yeah, I own the computer, and all these other people own their computers that have copies of the of the blockchain on it, right? They're running full nodes or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But I also own my my Bitcoin. What that means? What that that means? You own the entry on the ledger, but the entry on the ledger is just information stored on their computers so or do you own their are you now the example i was going to give you was craig wright um oh, who yeah, i yeah. debated by the way on intellectual property in london a couple years ago um that was no shit i didn't night. know that i'm gonna yeah, say that I was, i'm gonna write that down i we, want to watch that <laughs> we were throwing shade at each other on twitter because he's kind of a randian on ip and i some i, I challenged him mm -hmm. or he challenged me to debate and he said well unfortunately i'm in london and I said, well, ha I happen to be going to the Mises UK thing in London in five days. Why don't we have a debate? So we did a debate, um, and then we had drinks after. It was an odd, odd experience. Ah. He since blocked me because I challenged him to produce the, the studies he promised he would produce after the debate, which you know, he said one of these guys always promises he's going to do something, and, and he oh, always yeah. moves on to the next thing. But anyway, um, uh, so Craig Wright uh, – my understanding is I don't I don't know where the lawsuit's gone, but you remember after the Bitcoin S the BSV split from BSBCH, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there was a lot of posturing and squabbling. Who's going to be the true successor <laughs> replacement to B, to Bitcoin itself or something? And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so, and Craig was saying they were going to demolish the other guys with their whatever their their their, their tricks were going to be. But yeah. as far as I can tell, BCH sort of won the BCH BSC thing. But it's not over yet, but you know. Well, BCH is about to go through another fork um, because uh, developers want to uh, break off and institute a tax for uh, development uh, because they can't fund the project. Oh, is that what Roger Ver was whining about on Twitter this morning? Yeah, yeah. So. Uh... I think BSV might actually end up surviving longer than Bitcoin Cash, but Bitcoin Cash is still a higher market cap, so okay. it's a it's a shit show. <laughs> um, well, anyway, so I think anyway. Craig Wright and some of his some of these companies he's associated with, they filed a lawsuit in Florida federal court for antitrust infringement, saying that the Bitcoin Cash guys had unfairly like 
prevented the split or something. So, But the point was the remedy they were asking for, they wanted a court order to make the BCH thing unwind. Like remember you mentioned that in 2013 or something there was an unwinding mm -hmm. because of this weird orphan situation? Yeah, yeah. It was a voluntary thing, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I think the, the point is if you go to a federal court, you want a remedy, and the remedy they can again they can only use physical force, and they can't direct physical force against the blockchain. They can only direct it against people who own computers. Yeah. So the yeah. idea is, you know, you would have a court in Florida issue an, an order backed by contempt of court, physical force, jail fines, and criminal time to people that own computers, saying you must have nothing roll to do with back. this. Yeah. What's that? That have nothing to do with the the argument, even. Well, but the point is to enforce ownership of something like this, you would have to give a physical order to people to change the way that their own hard drive – like say you have to replace this current copy of the blockchain with this current copy. That's a good now, point. That's a, that's a way of taking their property from them because mm -hmm. you know, I have a right to have whatever – You're telling them how to, how to do, how, what to do with their own property. Like, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's my point. It always comes down to that. Interesting. So in that sense, you don't think – I guess it makes sense that you can't really own a Bitcoin. The best in the, you in the, can in the legal sense. In the legal you sense, can't, you, can't, you can't. Now, you, now listen. It, it, in the same way that you can't ever own information, but if I have some private, but information, there's intellectual property law. <laughs> well, even then, you still don't own information. You, it just is a disguised way of giving you ownership of other people's tangible property. You see, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's. I think it's literally impossible to own information. Um, so, I think that. Uh, um, you can't own in a legal sense a Bitcoin, but let me – I don't think you can own your novel either, but let's say I have a novel I've written, and I haven't published it, and it's in my house. Someone breaks into my home, and they steal the manuscript, and they publish it. Now, notice that they have, they have violated my property rights by, by breaking into my home. Mm -hmm. So – I can sue them for the damage they've done to me as a consequence of their commission of trespass. But, you know, if I'm if I'm showing my novel or my painting with 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 you know with a projector on the on a, on a wall in my kitchen and I leave the drapes open and my neighbor across the street takes a photograph of it, he hasn't invaded my property, and I don't yeah, own the I painting. I just displayed it to them. Yeah, I, I I revealed it. Now the same thing yeah. with Bitcoin. If you're stupid enough to leave your password on a piece of, on a post-it note, <laughs> uh, you know, on your dashboard, and you park, you go shopping at the grocery store, and someone sees it and they take your bitcoins. I don't think they violated a contract, and they haven't violated the terms of service with Bitcoin because there is no terms of service. So mm -hmm. there's no contract violation. They didn't commit any kind of trespass, uh, or or let's say they guess your password because. You, you use a stupid system You're, like you use a crap password, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and they guess password. It. Okay, well, <laughs> the, the Bitcoin's rules allow that. Like all Bitcoin yeah. says, is if you supply the password, you can transfer the thing. So, that so that's interesting. So in that in that context, to the the ability to quote unquote defend ownership, like the nature of having a key is the nature of having exclusive uh, control over it, as long as you can keep it secret. But the way that you could actually, in a legal sense, go after them is that, like, if someone broke into your treasure, like, 
yeah. those are those are the damages yeah. of someone breaking into yeah. your property yeah. it, or your be hard drive. Consequential damages of a physical uh -huh. trespass. So it's almost inconceivable. Given way Bitcoin, is it's like designed. burning down your house in a sense. It's just yeah. the digital value equivalent. Well, or take another example. Let's suppose I'm a rich old guy that's lazy and I give all my treasures to Coinbase or to my lawyer or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I have some trustee, some guy who's taking care of my stuff for me. Now, in those, in that case, you have a contract with them. You have an arrangement. So mm -hmm. if my lawyer or my accountant or whatever, you know, takes 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 my uh, my key and takes embezzles my funds, he is violating a contract with me. So again, I can go after him in that case. So there, there's a breach of contract or there's some kind of trespass to property. But other than some, and, and in those cases, you can go after them, but you're not going after them because you own the Bitcoin. You're going after them for a violation of your rights, which has consequential damages to you. Gotcha. Yeah. But in in if you could imagine a case where, like, let's say I invent a quantum computer tomorrow, and that quantum computer can guess can guess your key. I don't that's think that is not the same thing. Yeah. That's not. Um, but but if you legally think that people own their bitcoins then that breaking of the quantum that, that using of a quantum computer to break your key or to to figure out your key that would be a type of theft and i think that's that's the only place where i would disagree with people like it's it really it's an almost it's like an academic debate whether you own bitcoin although it's not completely academic because if you start calling bitcoin property then mm -hmm. it it almost might be worse for us because then the government will classify it as property, and now there's capital gains taxes and the, you know there's all kinds of consequences yeah. that come from labeling it as property, even though you don't need to label it as property to have security in it because the encryption yeah. system does that for you anyway. Yeah, kind of the beauty of it is that it is extra national that it 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 doesn't yeah. rely on the jurisdiction to enforce. The rules and have a system of cooperation between people. Um, so why even bother? Like because if you can actually take responsibility for yourself, you can get the exclusive right and control. Just you know, your keys, your coins, not your keys, not your coins. Yeah, it's it's awesome. almost like it's almost like if you have a secret, you know, in your head. Yeah, you you can you can keep people from finding it out by just keeping your mouth shut. I mean. That is that's not law. That's just the way the world works. If you don't that's just anything, reality. Yeah. Then that's not a you don't need a law saying the right for secrecy. And by the way, I not to get into this too much, but I do oppose patent and copyright law. They're the two worst types of intellectual property law, but the other two main types is trademark and trade secret. And I think mm -hmm. they're both they're both bad too. I would abolish them both. They're not nearly as I would say the worst is patent, then copyright, and then trademark, and then trade secret. That's but interesting even, because then trademark, you actually make a defensive trademark in yeah, the book. That's, well, I make a yeah. That's the one thing I would I'm gonna be be, be more radical on when I when I um uh, what I argued was to the extent it evolved on the common law and to the extent it's protecting consumers from some kind of fraud, mm -hmm. you might could justify it, but it's really not about that. Um, it's 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 it's, it doesn't require a showing of fraud. It only requires a showing of likelihood of consumer confusion. Gotcha. Okay. And consumer confusion is not fraud, and likelihood is not even consumer confusion. And it also gives the right to sue to the – not to the victim, the customer who was confused or defrauded, 
but it gives it to the to the trademark holder. Essentially, and third, to the wrong another... person. Yeah, that that it's the person who was defrauded, who was I think used a burger joint or whatever. Is that somebody copies some other like you know Burger yeah. King just labels McDonald's on the top of their store. Somebody goes and thinks they're getting McDonald's, and yeah. they're defrauded by getting a Burger King burger at instead. Um, that's the person who is the victim, not the not McDonald's. Well, exactly. Not only that, if it's really an act of fraud, then you, we already have fraud law. So what do you need trademark law for? What does it do different? Yeah. And number two, it's hard to imagine. Why would why is someone going to spend the money to build a restaurant that's going to get sued out of existence as soon as they open? It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and not yeah. only that, no one wants to open a Everyone that starts a restaurant or starts their own business, they 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 want to put their own name on it, you know. Yeah. They want yeah. they want to distinguish themselves from the other guys. Say we're better, we're different, whatever. Um, and then trade secret law. The problem with trade secret law is, look, there's nothing wrong with keeping things secret, um, but you don't need the law for that. Just keep them secret. The mm -hmm. main reason trade secret as a business practice is a little bit dangerous is because there's patent law. In other words, if I have a secret process for making some chemical or something, and if I don't patent it, which requires me to publish it and, and reveal my trade secret to the world, but now I have a monopoly for 17 years with a patent, but mm -hmm. I can keep it trade secret for a century possibly. You know, But the, the danger is the risk I'm taking is that someone else comes along 15 years later, and they invent the same process, and then they patent it. They can stop me from doing it even though I came up with it first. So yeah. like there's all these perverse things that come from the interplay of different types of IP law. But mm -hmm. the point is if there weren't patent law, there's nothing wrong with keeping these trade secret, but it what wouldn't need a law, like the whole point of it is that it's a secret. Well, the like. so the the point is what what is the law? The trade secret law is not the fact that you can keep something secret. What trade secret law is it says that if you have tried to keep something secret, and if it is in danger of leaking, you can go to a court and get a government – an order from the court against the person who's about to leak it and force them to keep their mouth shut about it. Now, that's probably justified in the case of an employee who left, and they're going to steal – He was under him. contract or something? Under yeah. But again, you, all you need is contract law yeah. for that. But the way the law works is you can get it against the competitor too. Who was who, mm, yeah. who got the information? As long as the information is not public yet. In fact, this is how Apple. If you remember that notorious case where uh, the guy when the Apple Four was coming out or something like that, and it was the, the design was all hush hush and secret, and one of the Apple engineers accidentally left his his prototype on a bar stool in a bar. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The, some of, some of, like some guy found it. Four or something and, like that. You're right. Yeah. And he took it home and. Listen, I would agree under regular libertarian property principles, he didn't own the phone. And so if Apple called him and says, we understand you have our phone, I think he should give have to back. give it back. Yeah. However, they busted in his door with federal agents to enforce federal trademark law, trade secret law, and he I believe he was like under threat of jail fines for revealing the information, like for taking a picture yeah. of it and putting it on the internet. Yeah. Now, yeah. That's there's no up. there's no libertarian theory that can justify that because he wasn't under contract and he, he didn't commit any trespass. Yeah. You know, he so, didn't even necessarily know what knew know what he had. Like, I mean, he 
like it was an Apple phone and this it was left somewhere and he saw it and he's sharing it on the internet. Like, yeah, well, what if he what if he never even touched? What if he just took a picture of it so he could find the owner later, maybe? And yeah. so now he's got a photograph <laughs> in his phone of this new design, which Apple's trying to keep hush us, and he mm -hmm. wants to post a picture of it online. Apple could use trade secret law theoretically to have a a, a court issue him an order under contempt of court. Yeah, you that's that's crazy. You can't reveal that picture to anyone. In fact, you have to turn your phone over to us and delete all these pictures. So again, even trade secret law is unjust, although it's not nearly as dangerous or as harmful as patent law, I think. But yeah. anyway. Um, well, I don't want to keep you too long. I do have one more little thing that I wanted to hit, if uh, sure. which could be 30 minutes. I have no idea how long it would take to go through this. Um, but go if you've got some time. Okay. I'll, I'll try one more issue. Go, sure, go ahead. Okay, so this is on copyright. Um, is uh, like so obviously, if you're uh, you know writing some sort of novel and creating some world or uh, making a film or something like that, like the only reason those markets work is because the person who made the content is the one getting paid for the viewership for. Well, to, to some degree, you know, obviously there's producers and there's a whole structure of production in that, uh, in that, that, uh, industry, but what, where is the line and, and, or like, cause, cause the, the logic of it makes perfect sense. Like that you still don't have control over somebody else's hard drive. Like the, the right to the picture doesn't make sense when somebody has just shared it or, um, stumbled upon it or something like that. What do you mean? You, you, are you, uh, let me. Are you talking about movies or photographs? What do you, what, what example? Let's, are you let's of? say, let's say movies. Let's say movies. Um, okay. Uh, just as an example, somebody has copied a movie. We've, we pirated it online or something. Well, hold and on. Then, said, wait, wait, wait. So you said obviously this only the the business model only works because people. Are you talking I, about the person who writes like the the book that it's based on, or you mean the the person who creates the movie itself? The person who creates the movie. Mm -hmm. Let's let's ignore the book and let's just focus on a movie right now. How... Right, like Raiders of, Raiders of Lost Ark. Okay. Brand Raiders of Lost Ark. Yeah. Lucas and Spielberg come up with a screenplay and they they do a movie. Okay. There you go. There you go. Um and uh they want to sell this movie on their platform or something and uh someone else copies it and you know it gets distributed to 100 million people, 200 million people, whatever it is. The whole audience and the original content creator never gets paid. Now, what in a free market, how do you see or, or can you imagine some sort of system that attempts to defend them? And how could it be done within the rights of all parties? Yeah. So this is I think what you're asking is so it's a complicated series of things. Um, mm -hmm. What you're really asking is. How would people – how can you monetize services that are easy to duplicate, right? Yeah, that's the, there you that's go. That's the question. That's the ultimate um, question, yes. Which is the kind of argument that is given for the pharmaceutical patents like, oh, if I spend a billion dollars perfecting this drug, um, and then you can just – then once I, once I get it approved by the FDA, you can just copy it easily because it's cheap to make these drugs maybe. Mm -hmm. um, then you can compete with me and you can outcompete me because you don't have this billion dollars of cost to pay back and all this kind of stuff, right? So you can sell mm -hmm. it just on just above cost, whereas if I do that, I'm going to lose money, blah, blah, blah. 
So I would never invest in the drug in the first place. Uh, and you could make a similar argument about big Hollywood blockbuster movies and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess there's several ways I would look at that. First of all, those are interesting questions, and it is it, it, it's it, there is a there is an issue faced by entrepreneurs to try to figure out how they can make a profit in any idea that they have, any industry. Mm -hmm. Because everyone knows that they're going to face competition. If I start a new hardware store, you know, or a new fried chicken joint, I know that if I'm successful, guess what? I'm going to breed competition, and eventually my profit margins are going to go down, and I'm going to have to figure out a way to to deal with that, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not guaranteed a profit either. And by the way, copyrights don't guarantee you a profit anyway. There's lots of flops. Certainly, movies that are yeah, flops. yeah. And there may be lots of movies and things not being made now because no one can figure out how to do them profitably. Mm -hmm. I mean there are probably some drugs not being invested in because it would take a trillion dollars to make it, but it would be great, but it's just not worth the cost. Yeah. Um, you know, There are probably some trillion-dollar movies that would be amazing, but it's just not worth the cost, <laughs> yeah. um, even, even with copyright. So copyright doesn't guarantee anything. Um, and I think you also have to recognize that copyright is dead. <laughs> it, so this is almost academic because certainly, certainly, there yeah. is copyright, but we can work around it with encryption and torrenting and with the internet now. So yeah. it doesn't matter what you say. The internet is like Cory Doctorow said. The internet is the world's biggest copying machine, and it's never going to get any harder than it is now to copy things. It's only going to get easier. Um, <laughs> the only way to stop it is to have draconian. You know, chop people's heads off and make examples of them and try to enforce copyright law like that, which is basically what they do. Yeah. But even that won't stop it, right? Oh, um, yeah. So, the, but the other the, the other issue is this: the function of law again is to do justice. Justice means giving someone their due. What their due is depends upon what their property rights are. So again, it's always about determining the answer to the question who owns this resource when there's a dispute over it. Um, it's not about trying to make sure we have enough blockbuster movies, the optimal amount of blockbuster movies. Um, so I guess the question is the implicit – the question is rarely seriously, can you tell me – give me advice on what business model I should use as an entrepreneur to figure out how to make profit <laughs> in this industry where competition is going to be very hard because – Blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, it yeah. might be easy for people to copy my movie. It's like that's your job, man. If you don't yeah. think you can make movie money making movies, don't make movies. Yeah. Um, or maybe more movies would be handcrafted independent things. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. hell, you and I are doing this for free right now. I write blog posts for free. No one pays me. Yeah. People talk on the internet all day long. No one's paying them. People do yeah. lots of artistic things, not for money. I think there's a really interesting well well we are creative beings you know like like we we desperately want to socialize yeah. we love exploring ideas yeah. and that's what art is um and uh there is a degree of I actually think the patron model uh is set to have a resurgence is that it's not made in the context of like oh we're definitely going to make a profit of it it's a yeah. it's a how do we get the attention and spread the ideas to the people that would benefit most by it. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is what I create in the world. Well, Look at that kind of and thing. And that's, that's, yeah. one, that's one response um, to the practical concern. But again, you have to keep in mind that, look, the point of law is not to make sure there's an optimal amount of Hollywood movies being made. Yeah. 
It's not a utilitarian because, argument. It's a moral one. Well, it's one. not just that. We don't even know if the optimal amount is being made now, and that's not the punk function of law in the first place. But mm-hmm. so the other thing is this, uh, and, and maybe this patron model in the future, when we're all hyper rich, maybe your own patron. I mean, you know, yeah. I have a job, I make some money, and then I use that to do hobbies and things I love. Yeah. Lots of people do that right now. You know, they paint paintings in the evening and they they work as a welder during the day or whatever. And under sound um, money, that might that opportunity might be a lot more available. <laughs> now, here's the, another way to think. Like, if you're talking about movies, for example, um, mm-hmm. and by the way, things like po- what about poetry? Poetry's never made money. It's never going to make money. So, <laughs> you know, you're picking on things that have, you're picking a couple of examples. Like, uh, you know, and the record industry has changed because you used to be able to sell records in the physical world and make money off records. That doesn't happen mm-hmm. anymore. No one makes money selling songs because no one buys songs because they don't want to they want to stream and then now we're in a digital world and the the, the music scene is flourishing um yeah. okay so in the movie case here's what i would say imagine the movie scene 40 years ago 30 years ago mm-hmm. there was one source of of revenue maybe two one was you sell tickets to show it at a movie theater mm-hmm. and maybe you got some other money when you license it to be shown on network tv 10 years later something like that was it yeah and then later airplanes started showing it and then (laughs) blockbuster video came out with with you know tapes rentals and then dvds and then and then 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 cable tv started and now we have now we have what we have now Mm -hmm. Um, so now they have like they had one or two sources of income before and they seem to make their movies then but now they have like seven other sources of revenue, and yeah. some of them are hard to make work because of it's easy to copy. Yeah, I mean, it's hotel, you know, hotel. T- there's all these things, right? So mm-hmm. just just because those other more digital versions are harder to make work because of their nature, doesn't mean you couldn't just make a movie and sell tickets at the movie theater mm-hmm. until the government shuts them down because of COVID bullshit. <laughs> so the same government that gives you this copyright to help you out is shutting is down movie not theaters. really is not really assisting the the, yeah. the process very much. And so I guess my answer is um, that um, it's really up to the entrepreneur to figure it out. I do think they could figure it out. I see no reason why uh, a movie couldn't. Okay, here's another. I mean, look, people have to get creative in the face of. A different type of competition, which is possible yeah. in a digital world. We got to remember there's good things about the digital world, but it, it also makes it harder for some old type business models to work. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I hear that some department stores now are shutting down. They're they're going to become Amazon fulfillment centers. Okay, they're adapting to the new world. Yeah. You know, um, secretaries used to be common in businesses. You don't really need a secretary anymore as much because everyone has their own personal secretaries, and so things become outsourced, and everything changes. That's the good thing about a dynamic economy. So who knows how business uh, how, how – but for example, I gave one example, and uh, just brainstorming. Like um, this is more for a novelist point of view, but like let's say J.K. Rowling. Who was like a welfare mother in England, right? And she was writing mm-hmm. these Harry Potter novels as a hobby on the on the subway or something or on the train. And I don't think she thought she'd be the richest woman in England someday. I don't think she thought she'd be a billionaire. She just did it because yeah. she was so because she was just loving it. Yeah, and she shopped it around. She finally found a publisher. She sold she sold Harry Potter. Now let's imagine a world where it's really easy to copy her book, which it is, like right now. Um, <laughs> what she 
But you know what? She's unknown. She wants to be copied. So she gets mm -hmm. a network of followers around the world who are Harry Potter fans now. Half of them did it through piracy. Who cares? Bunch of yeah. African kids. I don't know. Bunch of Ecuadorians. Yeah. They can't the, afford the, the overwhelming net positive there just well, by the, the, point the is, ease now of her avenues to get the information out or to get the well, story out. From her point of view, she wants to not be obscure. She wants people to exactly. read her books. And once she gets non-obscure, now she can maybe use that. So she could have said, um, okay, I've got book number two written. All my 17 million fans around the world, if you pre-order a copy for $5, um, I'll release it. Yeah. You know? I'll, I'll sign it. I'll sign your copy of it and then release it. Whatever. And so and so now or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. So now she's got like you know $20 million, and so… <laughs> So she's rich, and then maybe maybe a movie studio props up, and they're going to make a movie version of it because it's popular, and they don't need her permission. They don't need to pay her anything, but yeah. guess what? There might be two or three doing it at the same time, and so they're all, boot, they're all bootleg in a sense, but maybe <laughs> one of them goes, hey, you know what? There's two other studios doing Harry Potter. Let's see movie. if we can get if Rowling's we get J.K. Rowling to be yeah. like uh, like an advisor and to give it her stamp of approval, uh, we will outsell – the other guys and so they go to her and they give her this deal and they say we'll give you and so then as the authorized version comes out and they give her a cut of the uh, they get her a cut of the ticket prices so yeah. now she's got another hundred million dollars i mean yeah it, but you wouldn't do this if you can rely on copyright like she can now but if you couldn't you would have to come up with other ways yeah yeah so i guess that's um, my and... kind of rambling answer to that no, no, I, I love that. And what's funny is uh, that you point out is that like as technology progresses, what you end up with is actually more avenues to make money off of these things rather than fewer. Um, so even though the ability to copy it is easier, you also have these platforms like Netflix that can get away with riskier content or yeah. new, new story types and stuff. What you end up with is actually an explosion in the type of content and YouTube where all the all the content is actually free, but maybe you sell a a, a fan subscription thing yeah. or affiliate marketing for somebody to just get ten seconds of telling somebody about this product yeah. or advertise like or that merchandise sort of thing. or merch or exactly speaking, exactly speaking fees. I mean, there's all you kinds of business models about your content. Yeah. There's things going on now. No one could have. Like, you got you got these like teenage girls doing movie reaction videos. <laughs> or doing you know, doing TikTok videos and and parlaying that into a deal or getting you know monetizing it in some other kind of way. I just have a podcast where I read about Bitcoin. <laughs> that's that's, that's yeah, all. Or, I or for do. example, or, or for example, like Safe like Safedina Moose, for example. So Safe uh -huh. wrote that book, The Bitcoin Standard, which uh -huh. I'm sure you you you're, you're well familiar oh, yeah. with. Yeah, back and, and forth. And I remember he released it. I don't, I don't know if he released it open source because he had a publisher, but he he kind of didn't mind if people bootlegged the PDF of it. And uh, um, But the point is he's not going to make a lot of money on a Bitcoin book, but now mm -hmm. he's an expert. Yeah. So Now, now he's, he's the it. Bitcoin guy. <laughs> so now he can use that to teach a course or to have his private university or yeah. to do other things. You know, Maybe be a consultant for some group trying to set up their own – whatever. I, you know. It's the entrepreneur's responsibility to figure job. out how it's to use job. that content to sustain a lifestyle or to sustain a a type of production and provide value for other people. Um, well, and ultimately, it has to be because, like I, like I said, the the good thing is that 
even if you're in favor of IP mm -hmm. or copyright, it's 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 I won't say it's dead, but it's it's like a dead letter law in that it really can't be enforced, and everyone knows this. Yeah. And I yeah. hope and believe that someday patents will be like that too. When 3D printing, um, I was about to I yeah. was about to bring that up. <laughs> when it matures enough, uh, it might take 20, 30 years from now, but when it matures enough, the patent system will be almost unenforceable too in most cases. Yeah. yeah. But you know, fingers crossed on that one. Um, I, I I totally agree, and I think I think uh, at the exact same time. Like looking at the analogy of the explosion of the type of content, um, the lowering in the cost of creating that content, and then the the explosion in the variety of ways you can actually monetize it. Mm -hmm. I, th I think we could expect, in the same sense of the the, I hate I hate the word democracy democracy, but the democratization of the production of goods um, with three D printing and additive manufacturing uh, at a low scale. Um, that uh, we could essentially see the same thing is patents essentially being kind of a a, 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 a laughing memory of the past of like, oh, yeah, wasn't it fun? Yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah. it fun when it used to be like this? And uh, but then the explosion, the variety, the 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 um twists on products, the open source hardware and electronics and all this stuff, the the explosion in the number of ways that you can mix and create products and stuff is going to be uh, is going to be hard to contend with it's, it's going to be a crazy crazy future and i am just i've just gotten my 3d my first 3d printer actually yeah. charged up and light turned on like a week ago and i'm finally getting back to playing with it since pit block boom is over um and uh, I, so, by the way I, w I went to that last year i did uh did you was, yeah i went with i didn't a, see a did I, we never met each other Probably not. I was. I went to. The, I went to that. I went to that dinner with the safe. Did you go to the the dinner, the the big uh, carnivore dinner, the safe and Dina Moose arranged? At the I did not go to Safe's dinner last year. I yeah. only bought like the normal ticket. I was really, really penny pinching last year. But then I had so much fun. I was like, shit. I'm just gonna buy tickets well, it, for it all was, the things. Well, it was expensive. It was. I remember, mm -hmm. and I um, I, it was like I don't know, like 180 dollars or something. But, um. I remember, I, so I figured it would be a small crowd, but it was like, I don't know, I bet it was a hundred and something plus people. Went oh yeah, to the Bitcoiners dinner. go hard. <laughs> oh, they loved it, and it was it was like one of the, not to make you feel bad, but it was one of the most fun, best dinners I've ever been to. I mean, it was. I hate you. I'm not right a big now. carnivore guy, but it was, <laughs> we had carpaccio for appetizer, a huge T-bone steak, and then shrimp oh. cocktail for dessert. It was all meat, basically. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> crazy. No sides, no veggies, no no salads, nothing. All all meat. Awesome. Everyone loved oh. it. It was awesome. But yeah, that was a fun conference. Yeah, yeah. Bitblog Moon was great, and and I loved it this year. It was it was definitely a little like there were a whole lot of people who couldn't come, but God, it felt so great to be out at a conference with a bunch of was it uh, was it in Dallas? Didn't yet? care. It was in Dallas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. It was almost in the same place. It was like two blocks down. The hotel we were at last year got shut down. Uh, so it's closed for good. And that happened like two weeks before the actual conference took place. Um, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Gary. Gary was like all everything was all over the place. He was like, <laughs> oh, we're, we're moving locations. I'm talking to this person and this person and this person. And he made it happen. He made it happen. Um, but it was a, it was an absolute blast. I'm so glad I did it.
Um, but we'll have to meet up, man. Uh, it, I don't know, Bitcoin 2021 or whatever it is. Next, yeah, next uh, Bitcoin next conference you go to, yeah. I owe you a drink. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll probably try to go to Bit, Big Block Boom next year if it's, if it's in Dallas again. And if things are open up again, I'll probably try to go. So maybe so. Hell yeah. I'll be trying to speak again next year. So uh, I will absolutely unquestionably be there one way or the other. All right. Good. Dude. Stefan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, like I said, big fan. Uh, and uh, it's awesome to uh, uh, chat with another a fellow Austrian who has been so influential in a lot of what I think and uh, my kind of my rabbit hole through liberty. Um, so uh, thank you for coming on and chatting about some Bitcoin and some intellectual property, man. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, man. Boom. That will close us out for today's show. Um, uh, sorry, I'm uh, actually uh, mobile right now, so you may notice that the mic isn't uh, doesn't sound magical or anything, but uh, it does the trick. I had an absolute blast with Stefan on this uh, episode. Um, such a great conversation, and I really wish there is one thing that I wish so bad I had hit on that I'd kind of forgotten, um, and might be worth like getting him back on the show at some point and digging further into this because I could talk about this topic for hours. Um, I love this stuff, um, uh, particularly with kind of going into the digital age here with more and more quote-unquote property or more and more um, things of value being digital in nature. I think it's a really, not only just a really important, but just a fascinating topic to dig into how how or what sort of property rights could actually exist in the digital space. And I think Bitcoin is a really unique system uh, in exactly that way. Um, but uh, one thing I really wish I had remembered to hit on was the difference between someone, again, the example we gave, he gave of uh, J.K. Rowling uh, as a you know young, uh, looking to be successful author, hoping for someone to read her books about this strange character, Harry Potter, uh, is that to be copied and to have someone sell her work is, uh, is a great thing. You know, it's more exposure. It means that her ideas and her work gets out to more people. But the thing I forgot to bring up was what does it constitute and what's the difference, um, uh, kind of back to the trademark question, potentially, if I stole her book, but put my name on it. So it's not simply that her ideas were exposed. It's that I was given credit for her, for her ideas, excuse me. And I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I don't think it like, you know, really throws a uh, wrench into the plan or anything or to the, the logic of um, uh, the property rights. I just think it's a really fun thing to wonder about how that might actually be worked out in a purely digital space in the absence of intellectual property. So again, maybe that's uh, worth a whole nother episode to get Kinsella on and really dig further into it. Um, the guy is uh, has an endless amount of interesting things to talk about, so it would uh, be an easy one. So with that, let's go ahead and close this episode out. Don't forget to support this show by subscribing and sharing it out with everybody you know in the Bitcoin space. The future is digital. The future is Bitcoin. And it would just be so terrible for them to miss out. So hope you guys enjoyed this chat. I love you all. I'll catch you on the next one. And until then, take it easy, guys.
This has been a 111 production, and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.